for so long, I've been focused on foreign policy when it seems like most of politics is not focused on that. And I've wanted to bring the boys home from all over the world, but I am willing to admit that maybe there is something that comes first, and that is bringing the bozos home. So this is This Week in Common Sense, starring Paul Jacob. We're at the last week of March 2020, and Paul has written five stories this week on thisiscommonsense.com, and this is where we talk about them, one by one. Okay, last week we skipped all but one, but this week we talk about five. Paul? You know, on Tuesday, we had a commentary called Bring the Bozos Home, and with the virus out there. You know, Rand Paul was tested positive. There are other, I guess, four other uh, Republican senators, mainly because I think they hung out with Rand Paul, who are now self-quarantined. There are people in the House who are also self-quarantined. And it raises the whole issue of, wait a second, we may not have enough people to, to conduct business in Congress, not that they ever seem to get around it, although as we record this, it is Friday, the 27th of March, and they just passed a 2.2 trillion, which could balloon to 6.2 trillion bill, as I understand it. Uh, supposedly there's somehow some sort of kicker in this bill that could take it, depending on what happens, to 6.2 billion, or billion. No, 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 billions are, billions are chump change these days. Um, we're talking trillions. And uh, so, so anyway, this, this uh, Congress did get something done. They spent uh, several billion dollars. We're not sure how much just yet. Um, but Congress could get in a situation with a pandemic, who knows what, that they might need to be able to vote remotely. And with technology being what it is, of course, this is a no-brainer. Why wouldn't we be able to do that? And let me just take a, a quick tangent to say there's been a lot of talk about all-mail ballots in the states, uh, which I don't have a problem with all-mail ballots. Uh, I don't want automatic voter registration where people are registered against their will, basically, or without any consent, because if you're mailing out ballots and you're mailing them to a bunch of people who didn't want them in the first place, I'm a little concerned that there could be funny business. Not alleging that every election is decided by voter fraud, just let's not encourage it. Um, so I, I don't like that. And I, and, uh, you know, I want to be careful on any of this stuff. And anytime there's a crisis, I think you have to be very watchful of what politicians do because they love to use a crisis, you know, no, no crisis goes to waste and to load ridiculous crap and both sides do it, uh, into some of these bills. And the other thing that I think we'll see is a huge expanded early voting period. And most people like that. Gives them more opportunity to vote. I'm all for more opportunity to vote. But early voting is a huge advantage for incumbents. And the reason it's a huge advantage for incumbents is twofold. One, incumbents have more money almost always. Because, of course, everybody who is invested in the political process wants to give to them because they got to vote right now. They're already in power. So of course you want to fund them. And you know, a lot of times when the challenger wins the election, you have a bunch of lobbyists going, oh, I better write a quick check to the challenger. But they don't want their name on the challenger's campaign finance report. 
So uh, because then the incumbent who's sitting in power could, you know, kind of use that power against them. That's how politics works for people who have a financial interest in it, the special interests. And so that's, that means that incumbents have more money. Well, if you're, if voting is over a two week period, you have to have a certain amount of money to be on the airwaves that entire time, to be online, to be in the mail, to be on the TV, the radio. If that is expanded to four weeks, now all of a sudden you need twice as much money or you're gonna have people voting for a couple of weeks while the incumbent is advertising to them and you're not. So anytime you expand the election time, you expand the cost of elections and anything that makes elections cost more helps incumbents who have more money. But here's the other thing. Oftentimes, and not oftentimes, virtually every single time ever in the history of mankind, the incumbent has name recognition that's higher than the challenger. About the only time that wasn't true is in the 2016 election, when Hillary Clinton, who had nearly 100% name ID, was up against someone who'd never run for office before, Donald Trump, who had almost 100% name ID. So there are times where a challenger is so famous that they have equal name ID to the incumbent. But most times it's not anywhere close and all the campaigning and spending of that challenger starts to catch up with the incumbent and keeps catching up it's the little train that could and it's trying to get up the hill but it usually doesn't get to the top of the hill where it's competitive head to head against that that incumbent in terms of name id and knowledge of that person and comfortability maybe with that person until it gets right up to the election. So if half the vote is cast before the election, it allows the incumbent sometimes to, to sock away some vote before people really had a good look at both candidates. And so um, both of those factors together make, uh, and I'm not against early voting, I, I think it makes sense to do it in such a way that people are going to be people who want to vote get to vote that's the the whole idea i want anyone who cares to be able to vote but i don't want to go with the hey let's just make it as easy as possible if you make it as easy as possible why not have a three-month voting period well the reason would be because incumbents will hardly ever be defeated if you have to spend that kind of money it'll be whoever has the most money the the current process uh, in a lot of states is a couple of weeks of early voting. I don't object to that. Uh, I might make it less than a couple of weeks if I could, you know, wave a wand. I might make it a week or five days or, and, and allow absentee voting and other things. But I guess since this is a tangent, um, I'll just close it there by saying this is something to be watchful of. Incumbents may tell you they're doing you a favor when they're really doing themselves a favor. Let's not let these early voting uh, periods get out of hand. So back to um, fixing some of our election problems, because a week ago we talked about the pandemic petitioning and, and the fact that why haven't they allowed electronic signature gathering so people could sign a petition online? That would sure solve some of the problems today when nobody can go out with a petition to get a third party or independent candidate on the ballot or a petition on the ballot because we've got a pandemic that is, has basically closed down the country. 
and now we realize the Senate is in trouble with some people who can't be there and it could get a lot worse and we might need these legislatures in Congress and at the state level to come in and do something. You know, we, we keep saying, oh, the governor should do this or the president should order that. But sometimes you might need to change the law and we might need our representative legislative bodies to get together. Technology allows it, but our stupid laws that our representatives don't keep up to date are blocking it. And so I endorse the idea of remote voting. But as I mentioned in this commentary, bring the bozos home, let's do it big time. Let's not just do it in an emergency like this. Let's have our elected officials voting from home all the time. If they need to go to Washington to get together and rub elbows and, and uh, discuss things, occasionally that might make sense, but it is ridiculous in this day and time to be spending all this money flying these people across the country. Most of the times they're not getting together and getting to know each other. I mean, that's a bunch of hooey. But most of the time they're in Washington plotting and let's make them plot on the phone in their district sitting next to people like you. Um, and, and I think we're going to get better voting if they're voting from home. I think it also opens up something that, that I think most people have not thought about. But once upon a time, congressional districts were not 700,000 people. That is a ton of people, and it means that you have to have big money to, to launch a campaign and win when you have to reach 700,000 people. That's the average, a little bit more, the average congressional district. And it also means that you can't go door to door and shake their hand, especially with the coronavirus, uh, and talk to them, even when there's not a coronavirus. And we need smaller districts so that our representatives are closer to us. So that when 20 of us call them and say, what are you doing? Do you realize how this impacts us? They care. They give a hoot instead of really not giving a hoot. And in huge districts, we just don't have the same sway. We don't get the same representation. And in a system that is a representative democracy, if you don't have representation, it's not much of a system. And who out there, put it in the comments, if you feel represented, if you feel like the Congress represents you, or even your own congressman really represents you, put it in the comments. If you don't, you might put that in the comments, because I'm convinced that hardly any of us, even if the representative is someone we voted for every time, we don't really feel that that person's representing us. They might be better than the bad other party, whether it's blue or red, but they don't represent us. And I think if they were voting in the district they live in and they represent, that the influence of us as regular American voters, as their constituents, as citizens, would be a lot more, and the power and influence of lobbyists in Washington would be a lot less. For one, they have they they spend a lot of money on airfare. The lobbyists. So, are you suggesting that uh, representatives have offices in their districts and vote from there in special offices, and the senators perhaps go to the uh, state 
capital and vote. Is that? Or, or they could even vote. Senators could vote from their their district offices. All of the, you know, every senator has offices throughout that their state, and every representative has offices in their district. Now they also have the office in Washington, but they could easily vote from their district. Uh, and and I think the technology's there. It would be a better uh, a better situation in terms of allowing us as the American people who are supposed to be in charge to have more say-so and more influence. That sounds like a great idea. You know, it's a very popular idea, but it's a, it, you know, there's a little catch-22. Our fake representatives have to vote for it, have to support it. And, uh, and so they have to know that we're aware of, of the issue and that we want it bad enough to maybe send them out on their keister. You also hinted that uh, this would be a way of actually increasing the number of representatives. We wouldn't have to house them all in one place in uh, Washington, D.C. They could be as many as that needed to be, down to 70,000 people represented, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. It's, it's, uh, right now, we have districts that average 700,000 people. What if we were to go to districts that average 70,000 people? That's 10 times as many. Instead of 435, that's 4,350. See how good my math skills are? Um, I'm, not, I'm not Brian Williams. But, uh, but it's, the, it's the kind of thing where that's a ton of people. And of course, the argument would be, oh, it'd be chaos. We can't do that in Washington. We couldn't house them. We couldn't, we couldn't, we couldn't, we can't, we can't. But the reality is we're a big country of over 300 million people. And if, you, if you're looking for, you know, saving a nickel and you don't care about representatives, then let's just elect a president and he makes all the decisions. But I do care about being represented. And frankly, it would be tough to find, I mean, they could come to Washington and they could meet in a big, you know, uh, hall or in a stadium or whatever if they needed to. Um, but they don't need to. They could be home close to those of us who they're supposed to be working for instead of hobnobbing with lobbyists and other politicians in Washington. Now, it seems like this idea would be at least mentioned more often among the, uh, you know, the people who are for good government type of people. You know, people, uh, what was it, Common Cause? Was it, wasn't that an operation at one point? Well, they're, they're, Common Cause is still around. Uh, they're pushing campaign finance reform because so far all the campaign finance reform we've had has worked so well. There's, you know, it's funny, I haven't seen any campaign finance reform passed that after passage changed the way people talked about the problem. We still have the same problem having passed all these different restrictions. And of course, as someone who, who themselves is involved in raising money and, and when, when I'm successful doing that, sometimes spending money, I can tell you that as a small outfit, the campaign finance laws just scare the dickens out of me because you can send a check for $5,000 to some campaign. And if someone files a complaint, it could cost you 25,000 or 50 or 75 or a hundred thousand to litigate and, and deal with the bureaucratic campaign finance police in various States or to deal with the FEC. And what do the big boys do? Well, the big boys in Washington, after some of these campaigns, America's coming together and what is the crossroads, I think, is the uh, Karl Rove outfit. A lot of times these different outfits, at the end of a presidential campaign, 
they get their checkbook out and they write a check for $500,000 or a million dollars or $750,000 and pay the penalty that they get from the FEC. You know, small folks can't do that. And we hear all this talk about we've got to get big money out of politics, but almost everything they suggest and everything that they've done in terms of campaign finance reform has worked just fine for the billionaires. If you can hire a battery of attorneys and accountants, this is no problem to, to you know, get through the maze of campaign finance. But if you're a small outfit, you might as well not show up at the party. You can't afford the price of admission. So from a very personal way, I see how much the campaign finance regime is aimed at people who don't have the money to play at the top level and is no problem for the people who do. They simply write a check. And of course, the FEC is set up as a protect the Republican insiders and protect the Democratic insiders because there's an equal number of Democrats and Republicans. Now, if you're a Ross Perot, the late uh, billionaire who ran for president, who's representing you on that government body? You've got an equal number of Republicans and Democrats, so they can't kill each other, but they can sure decimate you and they can sure decimate any third party or independent candidate or any Republican and Democrat who's not in with the in crowd of their party. As long as you're in with the in crowd, you've got an equal number of reps on that body. What drives me so crazy is when I found out that bodies like the SEC have an equal, the Securities Exchange Commission, have an equal number of Democrats and Republicans. Our government in all kinds of ways has taken the two-party system, which is nowhere in the Constitution, and has institutionalized it and believed somewhere. It, it, it reminds me of Obama used to say a lot of times, well, Congress okayed it when, it when it came up with the FISA stuff and some of these different, you know, the NSA looking at everybody's, uh, you know, uh, information in violation of our Fourth Amendment rights. His response was, well, Congress okayed it. Well, that's not how our government works. And it's kind of like if both parties are for it, we get to do stuff that's not constitutional. No, you don't. We have to, we have to take a look at these agencies. There should not be any agency. And if, if we had decent, honest courts, there wouldn't be. No agency that is set up in a specifically, blatantly partisan way where you have an equal number of Democrats and Republicans making the decision over other people's lives, now all of a sudden you've set up these two parties as super people. The rest of us don't have any protection, but they do. And that is, again, it's a symptom of the fact that we don't have representatives in Washington. If, if we had representatives, they wouldn't have allowed this to happen. We have people in Washington working that we pay who represent themselves and their team their team, their partisan team, and their crony team. And none of that is helpful to the average American. This was a sort of pregnant commentary because we have talked before about representation and about the need for smaller districts, which ends up being more elected officials. But I think you can get more elected officials 
without paying more money because they shouldn't be making the kind of big salaries that they're making and they shouldn't get all the bennies and perks they're making. That is counterproductive. That, uh, that kind of facilitates them feeling like they're a separate class who's above us because they get all kinds of things that we don't get. And I, I'm, not, I'm not urging Congress to pass a bunch of giveaways to, to the average person, but, uh, but this, we're gonna talk a lot more about representation on an ongoing basis because I love all kinds of reforms. Anybody who watches this regularly knows how much I love term limits, how, what a good reform that is, how simple and straightforward it is, and how it's got support all across the spectrum, except from our pretend representatives who won't, won't allow us to have that because they don't want their power to be limited. But representation and the idea of having more congressmen and more legislators uh, is not so popular. People somewhat instinctively, I think, think, oh, if we're going to have more politicians, it's going to be worse. There'll be more ticks, you know, sucking our blood. Um, but the reality is, if you look where government is functioning best from a legislative standpoint, I would point you to New Hampshire, where their 400-member House, which I believe equates to something like 3,000, 3,500 people per representative, I can tell you that in New Hampshire, if a rep gets 10 or 20 or 30 calls about an issue, they pay attention. And I can tell you that if you're in California, where the state rep districts are like 500,000 people and the state Senate districts are a million people, bigger than congressional districts, you get 20 or 30 calls, hey, if they're not from people who are writing checks to your campaign, what do you care? because the whole thing's decided by who has the money to reach this giant audience. This is an issue that people have to, I think, be educated on, and we're going we're gonna to try to do that. But like you said, we have two things on the draft this week. Well, that's about bringing somebody else home, but really it's about not sending anybody away. <laughs> yes, and it, you know, it's somewhat removed. We had on Wednesday the National Commission on military, national, and public service, a commission set up by Congress to pass the buck, has been studying draft registration, should, should they extend it to women, uh, should there be Nash forced national service where all young people would give a year or two years of their life, and by give, I mean have taken from them, uh, a year or two years to do whatever. Um, and it's pretty obvious that, of course, there isn't, the government doesn't have, you know, slots to put all these people in. This is, you know, big government people's, you know, big dream is somehow to control young people. And, and so often it's, it's argued that we need some sort of national service to create greater cohesion because, you know, older people are partisan warriors who don't listen to each other. Well, then, then draft older people, not young people. And frankly, don't do that either. But, uh, but the real issue here was draft registration. And a former uh, Bernard Rosker, who was, uh, when I was uh, you know, 20 years old, and they brought draft registration back, and I refused to do it. It was under Jimmy Carter, and Bernard Rosker was the head of Selective Service at that point. He has testified that there's no need for this that it is a, a 
you know, program that you could start up at any time if you actually wanted a draft. So that all of this is really a big thing to kind of tell people, hey, we can get you anytime we want. And I look at it and I think we don't need it for military defense. We, it, it is only really there for different people to scheme up. Either we need it because people don't believe in the war that our leaders, I have hand quotes, uh, our leaders are trying to get us involved in, uh, or because they want this big pool of manpower to do all kinds of different schemes. But when you, you know, I have a, I have a daughter who's 20. I know other people who are young people. And the last thing we want is for the government to somehow, you know, get in the way of them. You know, my daughter's working all the time. She's going to school. She's getting good grades. She's planning her life. That's what freedom's all about. I know so many of her friends that are working as well all the time to get the money, to go to school. And somehow we're going to act like we can whip them into shape by taking them away from their lives and putting them into some stupid either we're going to put them into a military misadventure or we're going to find some civilian purpose like sweeping the streets that we're going to pretend is going to better them and better our society. It's ridiculous. But part of it just comes down to registration. Don't we want a list that would be there if we needed it? And the answer is no. And it's no because this list is a worthless list. This is, a, this is another pretend government program. If you were a ardent believer in the draft, and I am decidedly not, but if you were, you would not favor this if you knew what it was all about, because this list they have is next to worthless. In fact, Bernard Rosker said it's worse than nothing because it pretends to be something which stops people from planning how they would get a good list. And let me tell you why. Someone is supposed to register. Now, in my day, you had to go down to the post office and sign up. And even though they were threatening you with, you know, five years of prison and a $250,000 fine, they pretended that doing that meant that they had this list of people ready to defend the country. And the truth is, young people are ready to defend the country. So are other people, if there's a real threat. But the idea that browbeating someone into signing their name so that they can get government benefits shows some great national resolve is a joke. And to pretend that the, you know, the people in Beijing or in Moscow are somehow quaking in their boots because we have a list of young people who, of course, after they sign it, are the most mobile, transient group in our whole society and probably have 27 addresses in the next you know, two or three years. And so the, the address we're going to send it to is not going to be the address where they live. It's a, it's a ridiculous program from that standpoint. But my opposition to it is, I don't think we should be relying on a draft. I think we should be relying on the fact that we will, as Americans, step forward and defend our country. And if you really believe we're not prepared enough, then let's get better prepared. And this is what I mean by that. Instead of this stupid fight over a stupid list where you're going to force people to sign their name to be drafted later, 
why not offer training to people? Why not say, hey, we will train you for a six-week period or a three-week period, but we will teach you the basics. And maybe we'll teach you how to fire a gun. Maybe we will teach you how military things work. Maybe we will just ask you, like you could have a voluntary registration. Would you be willing in a time of emergency to come forward? Sign up here. Now that would be a list that actually mattered. Or maybe we, we pull people in and we test them as to whether they would make it, whether they would be in the military, because they're saying that 70% of young people are not physically qualified to be in the military. Well, I think there's a lot of young people, some, some wouldn't, but a lot who, if you said, we want you to come as a patriot and let us know whether in an emergency we could call you and you would then be able, physically able to serve, they could, they could check those boxes so they'd be much more ready. It's not about readiness. It is about, and this just, I, I, I can't see any other reason, but it just seems so sad and sick. I'm convinced it is about the fact that they do not want to give up this moment in which they get to tell people, you, you belong to us. We can grab you anytime we want you. They don't want to admit to the American people that, no, we really don't have that power. And I want them very much to acknowledge that they don't have that power and then to start to work from there. And, and it actually touches on Friday's commentary. And I'll just mention this because there's more to talk about about draft registration and then we'll get back maybe to, to uh, what I'm calling the, uh, the midterm coronavirus grades. But on, on Friday, we had a script called People Power in the Republic of China. And the Republic of China is the official name for Taiwan. It's not the People's Republic of China, which is the totalitarian uh, country run the mainland that's run by the Chinese Communist Party. Um, but one of the aspects, uh, you and I, and in fact, on, on Facebook had discussed this some, and you had pointed out that the, the best government response had come from South Korea um, and that the best public response had come from Japan. And I made the comment that the best combined public, private, individual response had come from Taiwan. But in some ways, it's hard to see the response from Taiwan compared to South Korea because South Korea had all these cases of coronavirus that they had to deal with, and they dealt with it very effectively. They played catch up, they started doing testing, which is of course something that in the US we need to do a lot more testing, because if you can test, you can, you can kind of separate the sick from the not sick, and you can allow your economy to do things, you can allow people to go to work, instead of stay home and get checks from the government, printing press. Uh, we print the checks, then we print the money, oh, there's nothing behind it? You know, there was some truth there. Well, in Taiwan, they have, and they're right next to China. And of course, China's, they have people flying back and forth all the time. But they literally, I think they've had one, they may have had a second death, uh, but they've had only about 100 cases. Many of them, people coming, students coming back, back from the UK or other places in the world. Um, they have been very effective. 
And of course, in the whole course of this, what's happening in this country, we see governors and mayors saying, you need to shelter in place and closing all the businesses and so on and acting, I think, in a somewhat draconian dictatorial fashion. And in all kinds of discussions you hear, that's the way it has to be. Because, you know, there's numbskulls who aren't going to do what they ought to do. But of course, I always respond to, you know what, even when you order it and threaten people, you still have numbskulls. There is no repealing numbskullery. It's out there and it's going to be out there. And so what you want is a, a you know, back and forth with people. Anytime you, you know, what I would do if I were president or governor or, or mayor is to look at what I thought needed to be done and then go to the public and say, this is what I'm asking you to do. This is why. And, and then you assess. If people are ignoring it, well, then maybe you take other actions. But the last thing you would do is come down heavy-handedly because you don't have to. You want that response from the public. You want the public to feel part of it. We're all in this together. And you can say we're all in this together. But if you then order, you know, issue orders and tell everybody what they're going to do, whether they like it or not, without any back and forth with the public, well, then we're not really all in this together. We're the peons and you're the leaders and we do what you say. And in those types of societies, things don't work out as well. And we pointed out that in Taiwan, as much as their government went to anybody who had it and said, who have you, you, know, who have you been in contact and had elaborate ways to track that, they didn't order everybody to do things. They relied on the people of Taiwan voluntarily doing things, voluntarily saying, here's who I've been with, and here's where I've been in the last few days. And, and then they followed up on that. I am convinced, look, we are all suffering from this thing. I'm sure that there's some, an 18 or 22-year-old or somebody who's 68 who's an idiot out there right now at this moment. But that's always going to be the case. What we want is the maximum buy-in and maximum unity of the rest of the population. And that comes from treating people like free individuals with brains. And it's all about, as we said in the commentary, responsibility. With freedom comes responsibility. And with the expectations of responsibility comes the desire from the people you're working with to rise to that occasion. You see it in the workplace. You see it in, in sports. You see it in schools. Being, recognizing that you're dealing with free people, you don't act like the, the butchers of Beijing. You don't act like dictators. You act like the representatives of a free and responsible people. And all kinds of good things happen. And we see the good. We see people doing all kinds of wonderful things because we're under the gun. And that's when we should be at our very best. But it, it removes that when all of a sudden we're fighting about who has what powers and so on. This is more about leadership and less about power. That was our Friday commentary. So we've already, we've already dealt with that, I think, Tim. And you've already, in a sense, dealt with uh, Draft Mom or Not, which was Thursdays. You're, you're right. It all sort of fits together. It does. And we didn't plan it that way. It just happened. 
it's the uh, spontaneous order. There is one more thing, though, I think, to talk about about drafting mom. And this is something that, that we've been told that this is all about equality. And of course, you know, we can argue about whether, you know, uh, women should be allowed in, in all the combat fields. They are now allowed in those fields. And I personally feel like if you can earn your way into that field, that your sex or gender should not stand in the way of you having that position. At the same time, I think it's true that if we had a huge segment of the population, both men and women, conscripted into the military, that a much higher percentage of men are going to be sent to the front lines for hand-to-hand -hand combat. And Joe Heck, the former congressman from Nevada, who was the chairman of this national commission, said the biggest stumbling block was people didn't like the idea of sending their mother or daughters or aunts or sisters into hand-to-hand -hand combat. Well, the truth is, I don't like the idea of sending anybody into hand-to-hand -hand combat. And so there's two things we ought to do. One, we ought to not look for wars to get ourselves engaged in. We ought to avoid war at just about all costs, obviously not at the cost of our freedom. There is a time to fight, and we will fight at that time. But don't be looking for all kinds of interventions where we can send a bunch of soldiers to get killed. Uh, it's why we should have long ago pulled out of Afghanistan. It's why we should be removing troops from Iraq. And it's why I'm darn glad that, that even though he's, President Trump has left most of the troops in Syria and doesn't seem to be following through on getting them out, he at least started to get them out. And, uh, and so there, that's the first thing to do, avoid wars that we don't need to fight. But the second thing to do is to have a volunteer army and let us thank people for having the courage to fight. And if that is a woman, great. If that is a man, great. It doesn't matter. We are so thankful that someone is willing to fight for our freedom. But don't force them to be there. And, and I say this, I've debated uh, the draft on military bases. I know a lot of people in the military, they do not want to draft. And I'm not talking about, I'm not hobnobbing with the Joint Chiefs. I'm talking about regular people, lieutenants and majors and colonels and privates and sergeants. They do not want a bunch of malcontents who don't want to be there in the foxhole with them. They want people who they can count on, brothers, sisters. And what we're being sold is that this is all about equality. What I'm, what I'm talking about here is that heck, the former congressman, chair of this commission, and Deborah Wada, who is on the commission and who talked to the New York Times and who is a former deputy assistant secretary in the army, we're both talking about um, how women could help the service. Like uh, Wada said, they could bring a new perspective and new experiences. But wait a second, we don't draft people into the military to bring their perspective. 
I mean, I, I, apparently all the movies and documentaries I've seen are wrong. It's a really nice kind of, you know, you sit in a circle and you discuss everything. No, this is fighting a war. And so it seems to me that, that they are pretending that men and women are going to have an equal opportunity to be forced into a foxhole on the front lines. And I think the reality is that's not what they're planning. They are planning to get a bunch of draftees, women, to do non-combat because they're going to be more men who are physically able to go through the rigors uh, of all the training to be able to be in combat. And so they're, they're selling us kind of a false equality. And why would they do that? Well, because now they get to conscript a whole bunch more people and they can force women to do this or do that. This is designed for war planners and national planners who want to deal with the American people as a manpower. You know, we decide where you go work. And, and you can imagine some people have said, well, what about in an emergency like this? Wouldn't it be great to have a draft where you could? No. No, because you would have all kinds of resistance to it. Do we want to have riots and, and protests? And No, we want unity, not division. And if you have a draft, you're going to have division. And we need people who want to help and who are skilled in things like nursing and doctoring and not people who are completely unskilled, who are pushed into some position that they don't know the first thing about. So calling for volunteers, and I note that in New York, they called for uh, some of the people who are retired, retired military, retired doctors and nurses, and asked them if they would come out of retirement. I believe they have 40,000 people who have volunteered to come out of retirement to help. That's what we need. That's the sort of thing that causes people, and we need some social sanction. I mean, the truth is, if you don't help your fellow man, well, then people are going to take note of that. If, if there's a war, you know, Heck had this ridiculous scenario during one of the hearings where he said, imagine that we're attacked from both Mexico and Canada at the same time, and we put out the call for volunteers, but there aren't enough coming forward. And I'm thinking, well, first of all, it's absolutely ridiculous. And we wrote a commentary at the time he said this, but absolutely ridiculous to think that, that Mexico and Canada, uh, who've never even rattled a saber, much less done anything to attack the United States, are going to do that. But really, you put out a call, our country is being taken over by folks, and nobody came forward? Well, let me tell you something. We're sunk, if that's the case. And it's interesting in, uh, in reading this 250-page ridiculous report that they put out, they estimate that if the selective service were not in operation, that to draft people would take over 900 days. To draft and put the first people into the military would take over 900 days, and that's why they have to have registration. Well, I know that if there was to be a draft, they'd take the list they have now through registration and they'd throw it in the trash can. And they'd go to the private marketplace and they'd buy lists, or they'd go to the Department of Education and they'd get lists, or to the IRS. 
And does anyone really believe, because if we do, we need to throw all these people out on their keister. Does anybody really believe that we would be attacked, that it would be a major war? And for more than two years, we wouldn't be able to send the first person? 900 days, it's not three years, but it's almost three years. It's more than two years. We wouldn't be able to send the first person to fight? I mean, that's ridiculous. This is government by insane bureaucracy, not by any sense of what a free people would do. If that was the case, we would have militias going to fight this war. We'd say, forget the federal government. It's going to be two years and we'll be taken over by Mexico. You know, the, the, and the crack troops from Canada and Mexico will have controlled our whole country. I mean, it's, it's insane. These, this, though, is what they believe makes an argument for having draft registration. They're so incompetent, they couldn't run a draft without having this organization, this agency already in place. And of course, we wouldn't need the draft. If we were actually attacked by anyone, you put out the call and you're gonna have, you're gonna have to have long lists to write everybody's name who's standing outside that, that enlistment thing. And I went to prison for five and a half months because I refused to sign my name on a draft registration form. I just turned 60 years old. I know I don't look it, I look a lot younger. But, <laughs> sometimes I like, I like my humor. Anyway, um, I will be outside asking them, can I get in? That I can, you know, I can do some push-ups. I'm not so out of shape. We want to be free people, and we will be whether they facilitate it or whether they stand in our way. And, and when I hear some bureaucrats say that it's going to take 900 plus days for them to deliver a draftee if they don't already have the agency in place, I think it's ridiculous. And it shows that their thinking is not the thinking of a dynamic free people. It's the thinking of a bunch of ridiculous bureaucrats. Now. I seem to remember that you may have had uh, something to do with one of my favorite oddball novels that dealt with the draft, which was The Rainbow Cadenza by Janiel Schulman. And he found, in his imagining of a science fiction future, he found something to do with uh, women draftees. Yes, yes, he did. And uh, I, when I was in prison... He asked me to write, uh, I think there were seven afterwards to his, it was the second printing of the novel, The Rainbow Cadenza, and asked me to write one of them. And um, I was so excited uh, that I, I turned it in fairly on time. And uh, jokingly afterwards, uh, Wendy McElroy, who some of my listeners will know, uh, sent me a note saying, wait a second. You know, I thought your afterward was good, but you cannot be a writer. If you're going to send in stuff that on time, you're making the rest of us look bad. So I've never let that happen again. Um, no, it, it's an interesting novel because it's futuristic. And the idea was that they had found a way to get a lot more male babies than female babies. And because they were constantly at war, they needed more male babies to grow up and be soldiers. And so there became this huge 
problem where you had so many more men than women, which of course reminds one of what's happened in China with the one child policy, which is now the two child policy. But anytime you have the government deciding, you know, whether you can have a kid or not, uh, well, bad things have happened. And, and China is way out of whack in terms of having more men than women. And uh, now in this science fiction novel, the government decided in their infinite wisdom that they would solve this problem by drafting women to be prostitutes in official government uh, bordellos. And, um, and of course, it was about the resistance to that uh, and, and trying to overcome this conscription-based society that had screwed everything up by wanting to make men simply war fighters and now was screwing everything up by making men, women strictly sexual objects. Um, and, uh, and, you know, in some ways, as, as I wrote, there was, a, there was a famous quote, and I believe it was General Wickham uh, who did it, but he had this uh, quote where he said, he was talking about how good uh, the army was, and he said, they follow orders and they die. And, uh, you know, whoa, that's great. And of course, you know, in a war, sometimes you have to follow orders. You have to take a hill or fight and you do die. So uh, I don't, I don't begrudge him that, but that is exactly what conscription is about. If I die fighting an enemy and defending freedom, that is a noble death. If I had a loved one, who died that way, I would mourn the death, but I'd always be proud of what they had done. When instead, we are mere objects, we are so much cannon fodder, who's just forced to go fight wars, whether we believe they're right or not, then we do die. And if we don't die physically, there is a death of the spirit. There is a death that we are living our lives, not for us, but for some stupid bureaucrat or politician in Washington. And frankly, you know, the people who have sacrificed, the people who, who took, you know, Omaha Beach, they, you know, so many people lost legs and limbs and died and, and, and you, you just cherish the sacrifice they made. But you want a society in which that decision is an individual's decision to go in. Now, obviously, if, if everybody who is in the military could have that day said, oh, now I'm going to make a different decision, um, that's not how it works. But people are willing to sacrifice. And for our government, whether it's the coronavirus or whether it's D-Day, for our government to treat them like just things that can be ordered around instead of living, breathing loved ones who are sacrificing because they care, because they love their fellow man, it, it, it cheapens it and, uh, and it's outrageous. And, and of course, in, in you know, making this whole thing about equality, I began to kind of look at it and realize they're not talking about real equality. And I'm not for real equality. I don't think, you know, I don't think that, 
you know, you'd, you'd have real equality of race and gender and so on if after a war you'd say, okay, well, this many people who were white died, this many people who are black, we better kill a few more here to even everything up, or male, female. That would be insane. Now, it might be suggested by, by some of the people who make policy in America, but, but, um, or who argue that somehow everything should be racially or, or gender-based or what have you. But I'm not for a quality of outcome. You're never going to get that. And, you know, more men are going to die in a war probably than women. So be it. It doesn't mean that a woman couldn't be part of that military and that combat unit. And it doesn't mean that women aren't going to die too. They are. And, uh, but it does mean that people are doing these things as free people and not simply because the government ordered them to do it. And, and we've had, we've had uh, scripts uh, that we've written about the draft because people suggested that the draft would help us control foreign policy. That somehow if, if uh, and, and it was suggested, um, Elliot Ackerman was the, the writer who, who wrote for The Atlantic and had a couple, you know, had, had a piece that basically said, you know, we ought to just draft the kids of rich people and force them into the military because then they'd be on the, on the hook, you know, on the phone with policymakers and somehow stop the wars. But the reality is we had a draft for post-World War II. It didn't stop our involvement in Korea. It didn't stop our involvement in Vietnam. In fact, it facilitated our involvement in Vietnam where we got sucked in more and more and more. And it wasn't, you know, people think of draft resistance stopping Vietnam. And I think it did to a large extent, but that was many years into it. And the idea that somehow the way to control our out-of-control government, out-of-control because we don't have real representation, as we talked about earlier, the way to stop that is to give them the power to order our kids into their service directly without any choice. That just seems insane. More freedom, not less, is going to have more control. I think with a volunteer army, if we got involved in something like Vietnam, you would very quickly see that people weren't joining the military and they would have to deal with that much, much faster than they would with a drafted, conscripted army. Well, last week we only did one story. The first time ever we didn't deal all five stories. I'm thinking that maybe this week, instead of doing all five stories, we just don't do one of them. Go to Mondays. It has an interesting contrast to everything we've said that this podcast, and then give us some feedback. I like it. And Mondays was how unwarlike. So it was about our response to the coronavirus, which is also often been called a war, but has, you know, we, we're not treating it like we would treat a war. And we pointed out some of the reasons why. So I encourage people to go to thisiscommonsense.com. You can find that and find a lot of other commentaries five times a week, Monday through Friday. Every day we have a commentary. And then on the weekend, we have a video podcast on Saturday and an audio podcast of that same podcast, but on audio on Sunday. They can get it at Stitcher and at SoundCloud. And soon, maybe a few other places.